I'd like to take a walk in the woods. Come with me, do you think you could? We'll find a tree that we can climb. We'll have fun all afternoon. Welcome to Nurture in Nature Radio. Join us each week where we'll show you how getting outdoors with your family can help your kids be happier, healthier and smarter. And you'll open the door to a whole lot of fun too. So come on, lace up your boots and let's go and play outside. Here's your host, Tanya Maloney. Hi everyone and welcome to Nurture in Nature Radio. I'm your host, Tanya Maloney, and thanks for coming along to play for episode number one of the show today. It's really great to have you along to join in the fun. Each week on the show, we'll be digging into the what, whys and hows of getting outdoors with your family and you'll learn lots of simple ideas to help you open the door more often for some good old-fashioned outdoor fun. Along the way, I'll be chatting with some of the world's leading advocates and practitioners who help connect children and families with nature, along with lots of researchers, educators, emotional intelligence specialists, environmental champions, relationship experts, parenting experts and health practitioners all aimed at helping you and your family get outdoors more often, nurture strong and meaningful bonds with your kids and create lots and lots and lots of cherished family memories together. You might even meet some new friends along the way to join you in your outdoor adventures. Sound like fun? Okay, let's go. This is episode number one. Today on the show, I'll be talking to the delightful and insightful Professor Marty Erickson. Marty is a developmental psychologist and researcher. She's also the co-founder and a past chair of the Children and Nature Network. And she's the founder of a weekly parenting podcast called Mum Enough. In this interview, I chat with Marty about the growing body of research advocating reconnecting children with nature and how it can help kids feel connection, competence and contribution. Three keys for helping them grow into healthy, happy adults. You'll learn how shared nature experiences can help nurture strong family bonds, both in the early years and as our children grow, and how time in nature can have a calming and restorative effect on your kids and you. You'll be inspired by how Marty's family harnessed the power of nature to bring them together and help with what her grandson calls getting the wild out. When I first started playing in this space of connecting families with and in nature, Marty's paper that she wrote for Children and Nature Network entitled Shared Nature Experiences as a Pathway to Strong Family Bonds was actually one of the very first things that I read. And I was so excited that I emailed Marty to thank her and I asked her if she'd like to be part of an interview series that I was putting together to help me and other parents understand how nature could help us help our kids grow and thrive in the world. Of course, she said yes, and that conversation, that interview, which you're about to hear, motivated me to keep talking to her and to people all around the world who are doing this great work and to share what I've learned with others. If you'd like to take a look at Marty's paper, and I really encourage you to do so, I've put it up on the show notes page for this show so you can access it. You'll find it at nurtureinnatureradio.com forward slash getting the wild out. So let's dive straight into the interview, and I hope you learn as much from Marty as I did. I'm sure you will. 
Hi everyone, it's Tanya Maloney here and today I'm talking to Professor Marty Eriks. And I have to tell you, when I first read some of Marty's research, which sits at the top of my reading pile, I was really, really excited and because the title is Shared Nature Experience as a Pathway to Strong Family Bonds. So I think you can understand why I was a bit excited about that. Um, Marty is a developmental psychologist uh, who retired from the University of Minnesota in 2008 and she's one of the founders and recent co-chair of the Children and Nature Network. And she's a really dedicated and passionate advocate for getting our kids outside and connected in nature. Marty and her daughter Erin also host a weekly talk show, and you can listen to that at mumenough.com. She entered her version of retirement in 2008 uh, and loves the work that she does now with the Children and Nature Network and all the other stuff she's doing. Um, her greatest passion, of course, is spending time with and learning from her four lively grandchildren, which I'm sure Marty keeps you on your toes. So welcome. Well, thanks so much, Tanya. It's a delight to be with you. I have many friends and colleagues in Australia, and it's always fun to connect with someone there. Excellent. Likewise. So I'd love you to tell us a bit about what you did before you retired. Sure. Well, that's uh, that's kind of a long story, but I'll keep it short. I, I worked for many years. Um, I've, I've been in the field of children and family work for 40-some years, and um it was uh, both a professor, uh, but even more of my time went into directing a large interdisciplinary consortium called the Children, Youth and Family Consortium at the University of Minnesota. And our mission was to link research, practice and policy. So really trying to bring the best knowledge from research to bear on what people in different family focused professions were doing, what policymakers were doing at the state and local and national level. I had the good fortune of working very closely with former Vice President Gore uh, in the 1990s on family policy. And so I spent a lot of time in, in Washington, DC, a lot of time at the White House. Um, and then also uh, for many years was studying parent-child attachment as part of a very major longitudinal study that started in 1975 at the University of Minnesota, really trying to understand um, what the factors are that allow children and families to thrive, even in the face of high-risk circumstances. So we were studying families in deep chronic poverty with many other kinds of risk factors, some mental health issues, um, domestic violence, uh, a lot of different things that can really compromise children and families and then trying to put that knowledge into preventive intervention programs, reaching out to new parents to help them find the best within and give their children the best they have. That's something that's close to my heart as well. So um, you've got a, a very powerful perspective to share. Uh, I know that. How did you get involved with the Children and Nature Network? I know one of, you're one of the co-founders, but can you tell me a little bit about what that is and what you do um, within that? Sure. Well, first of all, you know, I spent most of my career uh, trying to understand the factors that really matter most in children's development, the protective factors that can offset different kinds of challenges and allow children to, to do well in life, to be happy in life. And many of my colleagues and I, I think, were, you know, we were studying very important things, but we weren't fully paying attention to something that was happening right under our noses. From about the 1970s to the 1990s, there was a huge change in terms of the amount of time children were spending outdoors particularly in unstructured activities, not um, adult-directed activities. But I think we really were kind of neglecting 
that in many of our studies. And um, yeah, so we came kind of late to realizing that this huge thing was happening really all over the world, um, certainly in the United States, I think, um, where we have such wide access to technology and you know, so many other things that can really take away from children's outdoor time. And um, so my good friend and colleague, Richard Louvre, who wrote the best-selling book, Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, I had met him uh, in the mid-90s uh, when I was working with Vice President Gore, actually, we brought Rich uh, Lube to be a panelist at a conference that I was chairing for the Vice President. And Rich and I hit it off and started talking about a lot of our shared interests. He's a journalist by background. And um, we ended up doing some work together over the years so that when he started writing Last Child in the Woods, he asked me for some help. Um, in pulling together research that might make the case he was trying to make. And um, we had very similar views of, uh, and, and concerns about what was going on with children today. And so I helped him a little bit with the book. And then when he started out on book tour, so many people were coming out and were interested in what he was saying. And they wanted to know what to do about it. And there wasn't an easy answer to that. Lots of groups, you know, all across this country and many other countries doing things to get children outdoors, but not really anyone kind of pulling that all together and trying to promote culture change around the role of nature in children's lives. So Rich asked me and um, three or four other friends and colleagues if we thought it made sense to start an organization that would be kind of a connecting, uh, convening, catalyzing organization um, to really, really frame this as a movement. And I thought it was a great idea and agreed to work with Rich. So I was one of the founders um, that was in, in uh, excuse me, in 2006 uh, was when we actually uh, formed as a 501c3 nonprofit. And um, we have been going ever, se ever since. So I was chair of the Children and Nature Network for a couple of years, just to relinquish that role um, this past December. And I'll finish my long term as a board member this coming December. Excellent. So um, where can we find more information about the Children and Nature Network? Well, you can go to just childrenandnature.org. And there is a wealth of information there about what the network does. Um, lots of summaries of the best available research on why this, why nature is important in children's lives, um, what, what it really tributes to children's health and mental health and learning um, and also some of the reasons why children are not getting outdoors and different directions we can go in action. We also have a map that shows many of the local and regional networks that have spun off from the, from the national, now international, Children and Nature Network, and uh, just a lot of really good idea sharing. And Rich Lou, who's a, a lovely writer, as, as many people know, um, writes frequent blogs and also has a lot of guest bloggers who write really thought-provoking and, and inspiring and helpful pieces so there's just a lot of information there. I spend a fair bit of time on there so <laughs> it is a wonderful research and you know I encourage everybody to check it out because it, it's there's so much on there that's just really amazing you know informational but also there's practical resources as well so we can put put what we learn and what we know into action.
Well, exactly. And um, I'm glad you mentioned the practical resources, because I think, you know, it's one thing to talk about this and how how important it is to get children connected to nature for all kinds of reasons. But um, we don't quite know what the next steps are sometimes. And so some of the practical resources um, at the Children and Nature Network include a guide for starting family nature club. Um, there are uh, there's a community action guide if you really want to start a movement within your local community or your region. Uh, there's a wonderful guide that, that really walks you through that, tells you what you need to know. Um, and things about a natural teacher network, what it means to be a natural teacher. Um, there are just so many different pieces, depending on who you are and what you want to do. Uh, there are lots of tools there. To um, so we t you talked a little bit before, you mentioned a little bit before, what, what are some of the barriers for us, particularly as parents and even educators, in, in getting our kids outside more? Well, um, you know, in Rich Lube's book, he talked to many, many parents and really gathered a lot of information, firsthand uh, information from parents about what stands in their way. And one of the things that came through very strongly was fear. And uh, particularly uh, fear of stranger danger. Um, you know, we've, and we certainly have very uh, horrific stories that crop up in the news uh, over time. And uh, we, we experience those as if we experience each event as if it happens a thousand or a million times because the 24-7 news cycle, I think, really just brings these uh, quite rare events, fortunately. Um, into our lives in a way that really magnifies them. And so what Rich reported and cer what certainly matches with what I've learned from and with parents is that um, we have an emotional fear that really exceeds the actual threat to our children. In fact, uh, much of my own research on child abuse, and we know that most abuse of children actually happens in their homes, in their families, or within a close circle of people known to the family. Stranger danger is a very, very small um, proportion of incidents of child abuse. Now, one child is one too many, so I don't mean to make light of that. But I think we're so fearful of that since the 1970s, 80s, when, when this change really seemed to begin, we've gotten to the point where we just hold our children so tightly because of that perceived danger and really deprive them of things that uh, that are going to add great value to their development and maybe even put them at risk of some of the negative outcomes of not being outside, not being connected to nature. So fear is one big thing. Um, and fear of stranger danger is not the only piece of that. Um, many people are um, afraid of nature itself. So there's fear of Lyme disease, West Nile virus, bee stings, snake bites, you know, you name it. Um, and part of that, I think, is because today's parents are, um, many of them, that first generation that grew up without a lot of nature in their lives. My children are almost 40 and 37, and they were sort of the last cohort of what I call free-range children. It was after, after they moved through their childhood that we really saw this huge change. So a lot of parents are very uncomfortable with the outdoors themselves. A second huge barrier, I think, is technology, and it's so uh, seductive. And so ubiquitous, you know, you can't get away from it. And, um, and so I think many of us of all ages, children and adults, are kind of tethered uh, to our devices. 
And certainly once a child, you, well, you probably know yourself, you know, you get started with technology, you sit down at your computer or your iPad or whatever you're using and hours can pass yeah. and it feels like, feels like minutes. That's right. And so I think that um, that really challenges us to go outside first yeah. and well, not let ourselves get stuck uh, at our computers or whatever device we're using. Yeah. Yeah. So those are two big facts. So just, I guess, to allay those fears, you know, what are some of the things that we can do? You know, is it getting outside with friends so there's safety in numbers, that sort of that sort of thing? Well, I think that's part of it. And, I, you know, I wish that we could take away some of that fear, but I know that um, even for myself as a grandmother, I feel that fear emotionally, even though in my mind I know that it's – Danger isn't anywhere near the perception, but it's very hard to change that. So I do think we can connect in our neighborhoods and, you know, agree to kind of share responsibility for the children. Uh, have to live in a place where we can do that, you know, really take action to build those supportive connections among neighbors. I think the family nature clubs that Children in Nature Network has uh, launched really can be a wonderful way to bring parents together with their children to discover nature in a kind of safe, collective way, and, and then hopefully to take some of that home with them. Um, families going out together in nature, uh, just as individuals, not only in clubs. I think, you know, if we're really afraid to just let our kids be free-range children like earlier generations were, I think we certainly can go out with our kids and step back, not direct their activities, but really just create a place for them to act on their natural curiosity and their sense of discovery. So giving them some space to be on their own, but with adults nearby watching. And we as parents might, we might learn a few things as well and, and um, have some fun too in the meantime, yes? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's there's no uh, no more delightful activity from my perspective than getting outside with children, you know, especially when kids are young and just discovering the world. Um, it's just inspiring, really, to watch kids and to share that discovery with them. And as, as you know, from the report you cited before that I wrote for the Children in Nature Network, um, when you're just kind of following your child's lead and letting their curiosity and sense of wonder drive your interaction with them, um, you behave in ways that research has shown to really um, encourage and support good attachments, good family, family relationships, good parent-child relationships, um, because all the research on attachment shows that sensitivity to the cues of the child and uh, following the child's lead is really at the heart of the kind of sensitive, responsive interaction that leads a child to feel a secure attachment with that parent. And that's a very important foundation for lifelong development. So strong, strong parent-child attachment, what does that do? You know, if we're, if we're able to develop that, what benefits are there? for our kids and you know on the flip side what what are the issues if the strong parent attachment isn't there mm -hmm. well those are really big questions and I'll 
try to give you the, the 50 cent answer here. Um, but I think if people are, are really interested, there's some greater detail in the report that you cited. And, and I've written books and other, other publications about this. It's a complex body of research. But in short, um, the parent-infant attachment is really one of the most important points of connection in any human being's life. And um, all, all of us as, as babies come into this world needing the protection and the love and the security that comes from having a parent or parents who um, take our needs seriously and who try to figure out what we're saying long before we have words to speak. So really tuning into the child's needs and providing comfort and reassurance and, um, and that sense of security that comes from that. And what that does for uh, children, for people long-term, is that it gives us uh, a model of ourselves as being worthy of care as being able to solicit the care we need because we're not just passive blobs. We're, we're giving cues and signals. And so we discover that we have an impact on the world around us because when we give a cry for comfort or we smile and babble and reach out, we get a response. Um, but it also fosters a model of trust in other. It starts with trust in mom, trust in dad, maybe a grandparent or a, a, a continuous babysitter, a child care provider. But those really intimate relationships, they form the models that we carry forward with us. So um, what we've found in longitudinal research uh, is that children who have had that secure relationship with a sensitive, responsive caregiver are more confident when they're approaching new tasks, when they're interacting with new people. They interact more positively with both peers and adults as they go out into um, preschool and on through their school years. They are um, more, more agentic. That means they're more able to initiate activity and to use their own resources when it's appropriate to do that. They become more autonomous in a, in a balanced, healthy way, not just you know, running off and being rebellious, but really striking a healthy balance of autonomy and connection. Uh, so that it really shapes their interactions with all people and their sense of themselves um, in, in many situations throughout life. If children don't have that security, um, exactly how they develop will be shaped by the type of care they do receive. But we know that if children are experiencing kind of chronically unresponsive interactions with their parents, they really shut down and they quit trying to make that connection. So ultimately, they, they uh, behave in a way that kind of keeps people at a distance. And uh, they often at later ages are seen as aggressive, um, not having empathy for other people, um, really just not being able to form positive relations very easily uh, with peers or with adults. And children who have very inconsistent, highly erratic responsive um, parents, they um, often will develop a heightened sense of anxiety. So they're always looking, is someone going to take care of me or not? And those have, uh, you know, those have long-term consequences that have been elaborated on in, in um, many people's writings of recent years because attachment has been a huge focus in developmental research. But the bottom line is um, the ideal is for every baby to have a chance to have that one-on-one -on -one 
very close, very secure attachment in the early months and years of life. And, uh, and then to sustain that, of course, but that early experience really is a platform for healthy development. How can nature be, a, you know, a powerful ally in that or, or we can, you know, getting our kids out in nature, how can that help attachment? Well, I have to say, no one that I know of has really studied that systematically. So I'm kind of bringing together two different bodies of research here and and uh, proposing some hypotheses about it. But I, I think they're well-grounded hypotheses in that um, I think being outside in nature together um, especially if you can really unplug and step away from all of that technology we talked about before, really creates a condition or a context in which it's easier for parents to be responsive and sensitive to their child's cues and interests. And as I mentioned earlier, following your child's lead. Um, so I think nature kind of invites that in a special way. Um, I also think that uh, one of the things that's at the heart of a good attachment is um, affective sharing. That's how we talk about it in psychology. And that's just really, you know, delighting along with your child in things you're discovering or experiencing together, um, you know, really focusing on the same thing. So you're, uh, you're not always just face to face and, and interacting back and forth with your child, but you're, you know, you're, you're exploring these leaves and twigs and animals and, and water and all of these wonderful outdoor things together and having that shared sense of delight when you're splashing in the water or um, digging in the dirt, whatever it might be, watching your little garden grow up. Um, those are just beautiful things to be able to share. And those are the kinds of things. They don't have to happen outdoors, but I think the outdoors really affords a wonderful and rich environment in which those things can happen more easily, uh, especially in our various where, you know, we're always multitasking and so tethered to our, to our devices. I think it, it's even more important that we get out and really share those things with our children to strengthen our bonds with them and also to do all sorts of other things that nature does for children as individuals and for us. Yes, and for and we yeah, as as we said before, you know, we can have a bit of fun as well. One of um, one of my favourite things for my children to do is jump in puddles. So when it rains, they're just they're so excited because we have a massive puddle outside our house, and you know, one of their favourite things as part of that is to have me come along and jump in it with them. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and I do that sort of thing with my grandchildren all the time. In fact, you know, as you mentioned the puddles, I'm thinking of a book that my mother used to read to me when I was a child 100 years ago. And um, it was a story of a little girl named Susan Amantha Cottonwood, who was a very good girl. Um, except when it rained and she hated the rain and would just get very sad and very irritable. But the punchline of that wonderful story, which has been out of print for years now, um, was that her grandfather bought her a wonderful shiny raincoat and rain boots. And so she discovered the wonders of being out in the rain. And that story, I think, really stayed with me from my childhood and just, um, you know, has helped me really believe what we often say in the Children in Nature Network, that there's no such thing as bad weather, only the wrong clothes. Now, it's hard to, well, it's hard to mean that sometimes where I 
live, I live primarily in Minnesota, um, which is a pretty harsh climate with a lot of extremes. But if we can get outside almost every day here in Minnesota, I think anyone can. And splashing in the puddles or rolling in the snow, as we do a lot here, um, is a wonderful way to connect with children. Lots of laughs, which is uh, yeah, which is which is great. I think that's one of the the most beautiful sounds in the world is when you know when my kids are laughing and giggling, and they do that a lot more outside. Absolutely, yeah. You know, one of my little grandsons, I have two seven-year-old grandsons, and uh, one of them came over recently, and he was just literally bouncing off the walls and you know jumping off of a stairway like half. I stairs and I said, McKinley, that, that's outside behavior. You just said that in the house. And he says, I didn't have a chance to get the wild out all day, so I have to do it now. And I said, well, then let's go outside and get the wild out. But I thought that was such an insightful. He'd been in school and then he had some lessons or something. And, you know, it, it was just exactly what he needed. And, and it was great fun then for us to go out and get the wild out together. What a, what a great thing to say. <laughs> uh, I actually, I'm, I'm working on a memoir at, at the suggestion of my oldest grandchild, a yes. daughter, granddaughter who will be nine this summer. And she wants my stories. And I'm putting a lot of stories from the children because they do have just wonderful insights into the world and trying to capture that just for them. I don't know that anybody else will ever read it, but it's great fun. Yeah, there'll be lovely memories for them. And, and I'm sure a lot of people would love to read something like that. Definitely, I would. <laughs> I'll send you a copy, Tanya. Right. I'd love to. Can I say one other thing about the um, being outdoors together? Because we, we've talked about the fun and the laughter, and that is so important. It has such huge value. But I think it's also um, helpful to parents to know that being out in nature has huge um, stress-reducing properties. And so, um, and again, the research is really accumulating on that, um, the stress-reducing benefits for both children and adults. And so when you asked earlier about barriers for parents getting children outdoors, I think a lot of just feel like they don't want to be told that there's one more thing they ought to do. And yet I've never met a parent who didn't want to reduce his or her own stress and maybe reduce their child's stress too. And getting outdoors together is a great way to do that for everyone. So I, I think families have a huge stake in building the outdoors into their daily lives just so they can get rid of some of that stress that sort of plagues all of us in today's modern world. And everyone then is, is a lot happier. Exactly. <laughs> life, life, is, exactly. life goes a lot smoother. I worked, I went, I, you know, I visited the U.S. 20 years ago and I've been back since, so which is lovely. But when I first went over to the U.S., I worked at a summer camp in Michigan. It's called Mystic Lake and it was a beautiful place and I was lucky enough to be waterfront director there. And what struck me really was the amount of kids that would come to that camp who were on Ritalin or, you know, diagnosed with ADHD you know, 20 years ago and they were the kids that I noticed that getting outside and, and these some inner city kids as well, getting outside and just playing just freed them up and they just became these beautiful little kids with lots of energy that was directed, self-directed mm-hmm. uh, in nature. So uh, what, what are the findings around that or what are we, what are we seeing around um, you know, ADHD, attention deficit, that, that sort of thing? 
I think some of the best research being done on that specifically is out of the University of Illinois. Francis Kuo and Andrea Faber-Taylor have done some really nice studies, some very well-designed studies um, that look at children who have been diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyper disorder and also look at kids who have not been uh, diagnosed but what they're finding is that children really do um, concentrate better perform better on on tasks that measure their their focus and attentiveness um, after they have been outdoors and particularly in more natural environments so they've done some studies that really compare the effects of or the apparent effects of uh, being in natural environments versus being outdoors but you know walking among buildings and concrete. And I, I think, um, you know, that that's really important research. And I think there's a need for a lot more research and very carefully designed intervention studies. I'm not ready to say that, you know, all of all children should be taken off of medications, because I think medications often can really release children to be able to learn and, and function in more uh, socially beneficial ways, too. But I do think that um, we've created a situation uh, today in our schools and in our lives in general, uh, in which children don't have a chance to get outside. Recess has been eliminated or reduced in many schools. Uh, physical education has really taken a back seat uh, in many schools. And we've been expecting children at younger and younger ages to do um, sit down paper and pencil kinds of academic tasks that used to not be a part of preschool or early primary education at all. So we're expecting children to um, sit still at, in desks, at desks, and do that kind of work, which is, I mean, it has a place in children's learning, but it certainly is not the most effective way to learn most things children need to learn. So there are all kinds of reasons why I think we should examine that. But certainly, uh, I think that that kind of approach to learning which is again is getting lower and lower in the age span as it's being uh, used even in preschools and and uh, early childcare facilities. I think we're setting children up to have attention problems, and I think we're making it very hard for children who are, uh, you know, on that end of the of the uh, continuum in terms of their activity and distractibility and so on. So I think it's a you know it's a situation where we've really set our kids up or a lot of up for failure uh, with the kinds of expectations we've made. And then by not understanding that just getting them out in nature could really help them when they do have to sit down and do those paper and pencil tasks or other kinds of high concentration activities. Um, so it's a real serious, real serious issue. And I hope we can turn that around. That's part of what the Children in Nature Network is trying to do. And, you know, when we're sitting behind, you know, a desk or our computers and, and particularly children, it's it's quashing their sense of wonder and curiosity about the world, the larger world, isn't it, really? It really is. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't know how we lost sight of how important experiential learning is, how important wonder is, um, you know, the natural curiosity. If, if I, you know, if I could only learn by just sitting at a desk, I don't think I'd find anything very interesting. Um, and, and yet we're doing that to children. And, you know, we've kind of done that to ourselves, too, with, you know, with the way we've gone, with the way we work in recent decades. So I, I really hope we can 
turn that around. Turn it around. And they also have the whole, phys- the whole physical health thing, the, you know, the obesity epidemic and type 2 diabetes in younger and younger children. Um, you know, not to say that, that not being outside is the primary cause of that, but I think it is certainly a contributing factor um, in activity along with poor diet. And uh, of course, the more you're you're watching television and seeing the ads for unhealthy foods, you know that that feeds right into it as well. So, uh, the kind of activity level that children sort of naturally engage in when they're turned loose outside mm-hmm. is a very healthy activity level, and, uh, and we we really need to bring that back into all of our lives. And it's definitely commercial outside in in nature too. Exactly. 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 Um, so you're someone who walks your talk. You get outside a lot with your, your grandkids, and I'm sure you did with with your children as well. And friends, and and by myself. So what what are some of the what are some of the things that maybe we can we can do that you do with your kids that are simple and that that they that they love, and you know some of their favourite ways to let the wild out. Well, you know, I think the simplicity is a really important thing. So I'm glad you use that word simple in asking the question. And again, because, you know, most parents, especially who are in the throes of, of those child-rearing years, I think um, just have so many expectations jumping around in their head. And so making it simple is important. And what I found is, first of all, just to really lead with going outside. So it's not something that we have to build into the day, but it's having just an intention that we're going to spend as much time outside as we can. And all sorts of things that are activities we could do inside, we might just take outside. So we do a whole lot of picnics, um, which I find to be way easier as a grandmother because I don't have to worry about the crumbs on the floor. I don't have to sweep the floor after we're done with them. So, um, you know, we eat lots and lots of meals outside. And it's a real kick for the grandkids to even do that when it's snowy outside. You know, put on your snowsuit and let's just go have a picnic in the snow. Um, that has a, you know, a novelty element, at least when you first do it. I, um, I also, when my grandchildren were young enough that they needed naps, when they would stay with me, we often would take naps outside. And I, I love to fall asleep outside. I think it's just wonderful. So we would spread blankets and take pillows. And maybe we'd take some puzzles out on, on trays. And we'd do some quiet reading and, and uh, you know, working puzzles and just quiet things. And then wind down and take a little snooze outside. Um, we didn't do that so much in the winter here in Minnesota. We did that the rest of the year. Um, I keep... Um, Folding chairs, I have these little captain's chairs, you know, that come in a little canvas bag. And I keep a couple of those in the back of my car all the time. And I, I do that for myself, number one, because if I'm running from one meeting to another or, you know, doing a TV show and an interview here and there, if I have 15 minutes um, between activities, I will just look for a, a nice outdoor place and I'll just pull my car over and get outside for 15 minutes and just sit in that chair. Maybe I even have my iPhone with me and return phone calls. Maybe I just sit and breathe deeply for a few minutes and uh, enjoy my surroundings or I look over my notes for my next meeting or interview, but just to build that nature into my life. My grandchildren know that I do that and they get a real kick out of it. If we're out driving around together, I refer to those as my, as my little nature breaks and uh, the grandchildren will say, 
I think it's time for a little nature break. And so you know, they'll bring their, their books along or whatever. We'll just go sit outside for a while in those canvas chairs or just sit and talk. Um, so just lots of ways of just kind of building the outdoors into our usual activities. Um, then also just a whole lot of, you know, walking to a nearby park or a creek or a lake. I live in Minneapolis and I, I read recently that there is not a home in Minneapolis that is more than six blocks from a park. Wow. I'm, I'm wow. not absolutely positive that's true, but I, I think it's pretty close to true. And so even though I live right in the city, um, even where I'm sitting right now, I'm looking out at a lovely lake that's about three miles around and it's a spring fed lake. And there's a, a beautiful Creek that connects the Mississippi river to this lake. And um, so, and we have a little wildlife sanctuary at one end of the lake and some wetlands that were, were uh, added to deal with runoff from the nearby neighborhood. So there is a lot of nature just right out my back door. And that's the first activity we do with the kids. And once we get outside, it, you know, they don't really want to go in and that's great. And then it's a lot easier to get them ready for bed in the evening. They're eager to take a warm bath and put on their pajamas very early yes. after they've been getting the wild out all day. So those are the kinds of things that we do. For parents as well, having not having those battles over dinner time and, and bath time and getting ready for bedtime is is. A great, uh, a great benefit. So, um. it is, and I, I really see that uh, over and over and over again. You know, it's just, I mean, that just is never an issue. They are so ready to wind down by the time they come in after a day outdoors. We also do camping trips and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, from the time the kids were were just babies and toddlers, we would do family uh, tent camping trips. Just real simple little trips to nearby. Uh, you know, state parks or regional parks. Again, we have a wealth of, of parks and wonderful outdoor places nearby. Um, so the camping is really fun and we love to see the kids. I remember the two-year-olds, the first time we took uh, the, the two boys who are now seven, uh, they were two when we did one of our first whole family, extended family camping trips. And you know, they were on top of the world because they got to pound the stakes in when we pitched the tent and they got to help with building the fire and cooking s'mores and, you know, they got to go explore in the woods and it, they were really in a very safe place, but they had the sense of being off on their own in the woods. And um, I also buy gifts for the kids uh, whenever I'm buying birthday gifts or other holiday gifts. I try to think about things that are tied to the outdoors. So one of the big hits that I remember from when the kids were really little, I got all of them headlamps uh, that you would wear camping you know with a little strap and the ones that have a red a red light option which doesn't damage the eyes of nocturnal animals and so going outdoors after dark with those headlamps on is just a huge adventure for the kids still but it certainly was thrilling when they got those for christmas one year it was just a big deal and uh you know little things like little magnifying glasses and bug catches and Oh, I bought a lot of those kinds of things. Absolutely. There's so many things if you just have that mindset. A lot of it, I think, is just becoming intentional about it. Yeah, and as you say, being intentional about the things like that, but also being intentional and making it a habit. You know, the first thing you do, as you said, getting outside. Exactly. I'll be on the lookout for my, for my kids doing stuff inside that we could take outside um, starting today even a bit more. So. Great. Homework outside too, yeah. you know. 
gets to, I don't know if your kids are old enough to have homework yet, but, uh, uh, but you know, they, all of those things that can be kind of a struggle sometimes are just more fun if you can do them outside. Well, not up to homework yet, but maybe arts and crafts we can do. We've, we've done some painting on, you know, on rocks and old tr- old tree stumps and sticks and pine cones and things. And that was so fantastic and great gifts for the kids to give, you know, their grandparents or for us as well. So, which is That's a lot great. Of fun. Yeah, my grandkids love to build fairy houses too, and they come up with all sorts of wonderful ways to do that on their own. They just go out and, you know, muck around in my big backyard. <laughs> kinds of interesting things yeah, and stimulating stimulating conversation out of that or just um, allowing them to explain you know what they're doing we, we built a fairy house as well a couple of weeks ago and I'd got up very early the, all the children and sprinkled a little bit of fairy dust around and went out to see if the fairies had been and of course they had been and my children just listening to how first of all watching the look of awe on their face that the fairies had actually been there and the questions that came out gave me a good laugh (laughs) for a start um but you know where is the fridge uh nash asked and (laughs) 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 some other things that i that i probably can't um, i can't say what he said about the fairy dust but anyways (laughs) oh well Oh well, again, I, I'm sure I have it on video for their uh, 21st birthday. So, that's oh, fun! <laughs> that's, that's good. That's a nice blending of technology and nature, by the way. It was, yeah. And then I put the phone away, and and I and we played and talked fairies. So that's good. So. Um, we've covered a lot of ground, you know, with with what we've talked about today. Have you got anything that you think we've, you know, there's lots we've obviously, but have you got anything particularly, any other words of advice or any other things you can share with us about getting our kids outside? Well, you know, one one thing that really is not on the level of a practical tip for getting kids outside, but it's really about um, having a framework for why this is so important, but also um, the big protective factors that research points to Um, and how they can really play into being outdoors, children being outdoors. And um, there's a, a, I pulled together kind of a summary of a very complex body of research on the most important protective factors for children's development at, at any age and across all different populations, you know, urban, rural, different ethnic groups, doesn't matter who, who you study. And I've kind of summarized that um, as the three C's and in fact, if people are interested, um, there are some handouts that are downloadable free of charge from my website, momenough.com. I just go to the resource section and look under handouts. And, um, and, and the three C's are connection, competence, and contribution. And across so many studies, those factors, they may not always have the exact label that I'm using, but they come through in all sorts of ways. And connection goes back to that idea of attachment. Children absolutely need, uh, probably more than anything else, a connection with caring, supportive adults. And then that, in turn, enables them to build positive connections with peers and with other caring adults as they go out into the world. So that's number one. And we've talked earlier about, you know, how the outdoors can really help make that easier, I think, to really build those meaningful connections. The second thing is competence. And children today, I think, um, so often have adults doing so many things for them, 
or trying to make things easy for them, you know, trying to keep things easy in the moment without realizing how important it is long-term for children to really build their skills and their competence to navigate ups and downs, to navigate challenges in life, to problem solve. Um, and the outdoors is just amazing as a forum or a context in which children can really stretch and build their competencies. Um, so I think nature connection really has just a wonderful place in allowing children, you know, learning how to climb over that fallen tree, uh, learning how to deal with, uh, you know, with the problem of pesky animals in the backyard. I mean, I, just so many different things that really invite children's problem solving and, and so on. And then the third C is contribution. And what research is showing is that people of all ages, from little toddlers right on up to um, people in the last stages of life, thrive best when they know that they have something to give to the common good, when they really experience what it means to contribute to the world around them, even if that world is just their little family and their little house. And um, I think, again, the outdoors is a wonderful place, like the camping example I used. My two grandsons, age two at that time, really felt a real sense of competence and contribution in helping to set up camp, uh, helping to set up the food and get the fire going. And there are just so many opportunities for children to build those three C's in the outdoors. And I would hope that parents would really hold on to that concept of the three C's and think about how they can use that in their lives, not only outdoors, but certainly with nature as one great place to do that. They want to help. They want to contribute. And, you know, you've got to make it, sometimes you've really got to make an effort not to do it yourself. It's a lot easier sometimes to do it yourself. But in the long run, you know, if you raise those kids to, uh, to be contributors, yes. as they get to be nine, 10, 15, 17, yes. uh, your life will be much easier if they know that they're expected to be contributing members of the family community and the school community. They'll be better citizens and they'll have a much greater sense of self-worth and, and um, satisfaction that comes from that. And ach achievement too. Exactly. So just quickly on, on, that, on that contribution aspect, um, in terms of contribution to... I guess more environmental things that are going on in the environment and uh, both in their local environment but in a larger world environment. And, uh, what, how can we foster that sense of stewardship or contribution for our kids into the natural world? Well, I, I think you've spoken to Louise Chawla who has done some of the good work on that and I think that um, uh, there's a psychological principle that really um, helps me think about that and it's just that we care for what we know and love. And that's, you know, kind of a fact of, of human life that um, we, you know, we certainly we can be compelled to take care of things that we don't know and love, but it comes much more naturally to really take care of things that we know and love firsthand. And so I think getting children from the earliest age possible to know and love the environment and, you know, the environment for young children is just what they can go out and touch and feel right in their own backyard or in the park down the street or, you know, where, wherever they might be. Um, but getting them out early and really helping them love and appreciate nature. And then as they get older, beginning to teach them 
um, the, those larger ideas of what we have to do to take care of our planet. Um, but I think that that doesn't so much have a place in those initial experiences. Children need to just really find the joy of being outdoors in nature. And then as they get a little older and they can understand some of the threats to the natural world, um, that we have some power to change and they'll be very ready to do their part in that. So then as kids get older, certainly, you know, having them help with the family recycling, having them become mindful of water use and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things. We have a big program um, here in the Twin Cities, an organization that I'm on board, board for, Wilderness Inquiry, um, is getting inner city kids out on the Mississippi River, which runs right through Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, where I live. And these are kids who, you know, might just live two or three blocks away from the river, but they haven't really known um, what the river is to our community. Many of them didn't know that that's the source of our drinking water. Many of them didn't know what their actions do uh, to, uh, to the quality of that water. And so it's been a, a really transforming kind of experience. Last year, they got 10,000 urban kids out uh, canoeing on the river and then some of them doing overnight camping right in the city along the river. We have a, a national recreation area, national park along the river. And uh, it's been quite an extraordinary experience for these kids. But I think that's an example um, as kids you know, get into elementary school, middle school and on up to really um, get that sense of the environment in their own larger community and then, of course, taking that to a global level as they're old enough to really have that perspective. Excellent. So there's, there's lots of great things to get our kids involved in as well, both organised and, and non, not so organised as well, or not so unstructured. So, um, okay, so how can you tell me a little bit about what you do with Mum Enough? really like to know just a bit. I'm so glad you asked because that's my, my pet project at this point. Um, well, starting back in 2006, um, my daughter and I had a radio show here in the Twin Cities. And um, after four years on the radio, we were reading the research on uh, the fact that most parents are getting most of their parenting information now from the Internet rather than radio or TV. And, and that's a little scary to me because there's some really misguided, um, maybe well-meaning, but misguided information out there. And uh, so we decided to take our show to the Internet, and we've been doing that now um, since January of 2010 with support from the Minnesota Department of Education, Minnesota Department of Public Safety, several other uh, organizations that provide financial support to us and stand with us for um, research-based information to help parents deal with the whole range of things that we encounter as parents. And also to have um, not, not just research, but my daughter and I bring our real life stories, our successes and failures, and uh, our interactions, which get a little testy sometimes as mother-daughter <laughs> interactions sometimes do, but we're very close and we have a lot of fun together. And uh, people tell us that comes through in our shows. So every Monday morning we post a new show. Uh, usually we have a guest, often, you know, best-selling authors and experts from the universities and other organizations uh, nearby. We get people by phone from other states and other countries. Um, 
and also have a lot of in-person guests who come and sit with us in a studio that I created in my home, so it's very cozy. And uh, we post a new show every week, and then the shows stay there permanently. So we have an archive now of oh, three and a half, almost four years worth of 30-minute commercial-free uh, podcasts that can be downloaded free of charge from our website. You can listen online or you can download to any kind of listening device. And we have just, you know, many, many thousands of parents around the country and around the world who are finding us and sending us a lot of good feedback on what we're doing. So it's, uh, it's really fun. My daughter is a maternal child health specialist. She's uh, in a doctorate of nursing practice program now to be a nurse midwife. Uh, but she also has a master's in public health and uh, really has a lot of science-based knowledge about um, parenting and, and child development and those early connections between moms and babies, dads and babies as well. So we both bring our professional expertise, but again, we, we tell a lot of stories for better or worse. And we have a lot, yeah, and, and the kids can li- listen to them, you know, years later. That's right. That's right. In fact, if, if uh, people listen, they will hear my daughter's two children uh, in the introduction. We had her kids uh, kind of pitch in on the, the recorded intro. And uh, my daughter's daughter, Clara, is already talking about having a show of her own someday. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see where that goes. You've been great role, great role models in lots of lots of areas. Sometimes great and sometimes not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being um, and speaking with me today. I've I've learned a lot, and I know lots of other people will find it um, inspiring. And you know, there's a little bit of humour in there and some practical uh, application for for us parents who want to move that getting our kids outside up on our to-do list and put it at the top. So thank you very much. I wish you all the best in your endeavours, in your retirement, and uh, look forward to hearing what you're up to, particularly with um, regards to family research and nature. Well, thank you so much, Tanya. It's a delight to be with you. As I said, I have a lot of connections in Australia. I've done nine speaking trips there since 1997. So uh, I hope perhaps some of my friends there will uh, have a chance to see this too. But great, great work that you're doing, and thanks for letting me be with you today. Thank you, and you're welcome back here anytime. All right, stay in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you really enjoyed this episode of Nurture in Nature Radio. In the next episode, I have a very special guest. Of course, all my guests are very special, but I think this one in particular will melt your heart, and she has a very compelling message to share. Now, I'm not going to elaborate any further, so you'll just have to tune in for the next episode to find out more. If you'd like to get weekly tips for getting your family outdoors more often and simple ideas on what to do when you get out there, make sure you sign up for our weekly newsletter over at nurtureinnatureradio.com forward slash play. New episodes of Nurture in Nature Radio hit the airwaves each week on a Tuesday morning. That's Melbourne, Australia time. And of course, you can also listen to this and all our episodes anytime on iTunes and Stitcher. And now it's time for you to switch off whatever device you're listening on and take that all-important step out the door and into nature for lots of fun, learning and memory-making with your family. I'm your host, Tanya Maloney, and I look forward to seeing you and your family outside. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening to Nurture in Nature Radio. Now let's go play outside. I'll race you to the door. See you again next week. Little trees need a chance to grow. It takes time and care.